everybody, and welcome to another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish. I'm your host, Grant Pemberton, and on today's podcast, we have the amazing honor of uh, of welcoming our next guest. Ken, I will give you the honor of introducing him, but thank you for being with us as we are still, we've done two podcasts today, and we're uh, fresh off the uh, Fusion Conference, and um, I know that we're we're still trying to figure out our names and who we are and maybe even what city we're in, but we're, we're here and excited. And in fact, we're actually here with it, with one of uh, the key speakers uh, at the conference. So Kim, without further ado, could you let everybody know who's, who's here? Yeah. So uh, with us today, we have Dr. Craig Keener. He's a professor of new Testament at Asbury theological seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, Asbury is the Asbury where the Holy spirit broke out in February of this year. Um, He's been a professor there for, I don't even know how long, but some years. Um, he's a prolific writer. Um, just over here to my right, I have his four-volume commentary on Acts, which he uh, shared with me this week when we were at Fusion, is 4,500 pages. I'd never actually sat down and looked at that. I just know it takes up about this much space on my bookshelf. Um, he's written many other commentaries. He was actually giving away for free to the speakers his commentary on First Peter and Galatians, which are sitting right here on my book stack. My office is more of a cave than an office, but I, I, honestly, yours looks kind of cave-like also looking at everything you've got stacked up. But, uh, but anyway, I, I, I don't really have enough good things to say about Craig Keener. Um, and I'm so grateful that he was one of our speakers at Fusion, and I'm grateful that he's with us today on the podcast. So welcome to the show. It's it's a privilege to be with you, Ken and Grant. So, um, you know, I, I like our listeners to get a sense of who are they listening to. And so just a basic start out question. Tell us about your journey to faith. How did you become a believer um, from the get go? And we'll take it from there. Yeah, I, I did not grow up in a Christian home. I did have some Christian relatives who were praying for us, but a certain member of my family told them, don't witness to our kids. <laughs> you you keep that to yourself. So they just prayed for us uh, for years. And uh, I I was an atheist. I believed, I think I, I think I was probably an atheist at least since the age of nine. And then I, I you know, I thought I could explain everything naturalistically, uh, you you would be happy to know I was planning to be an astrophysicist. I'm sure that would have led me in the right the right direction. <laughs> but I, I was reading Plato when I was about 13, and Plato was talking about the immortality of the soul. And I didn't think he argued his case very well, but he raised really important questions. And I was like, well, I'm definitely finite. There's you know, I had a beginning, I'm going to have an ending. And so if there's nothing infinite that we can tap into, I'm toast. And it didn't make sense of my own, my own consciousness, my own existence. And I, and I also realized if there's no infinite being who cares for us, we're in trouble. But why would an infinite being care about us? And certainly why would an infinite being care about me? because the infinite being would have to be infinite love, loving to care about me. And I wasn't very loving. So why, why would he care about me? But I started saying, if there's a God, 
please show me, which isn't a bad place to start, I think. And so as far as anybody else knew, I was an atheist, but I was an atheist with some questions. And one day, some people came to me on the street. They were fundamental Baptists. They were the only people out in the street sharing their faith. Uh, they probably didn't believe in certain working of the Spirit for today, but the Spirit worked through them anyway. They, they shared with me the gospel. I argued with them for 45 minutes, hit them with what I thought was the ultimate question. If there's a God, where did the dinosaur bones come from? Well, you ask a stupid question, you get a stupid answer. They said the devil put them there. So they weren't trained in paleontology. They weren't trained in apologetics. <laughs> but as I walked home, you know, I'd heard the gospel. I'd heard that Jesus died for me. God raised him from the dead. That was the way I could be made right with God. The Holy Spirit was working on me. I got home. The presence of God was so strong in the room. How can you be an atheist when God is in the room with you? <laughs> uh, very, you know, manifesting his presence. And so I said, okay, God, I don't understand how Jesus dying for me and rising from the dead can save me. But if that's what you're saying, I'll believe it. But God, I, I don't know how to be saved. So if you want to save me, you're going to have to do it yourself. And all of a sudden, I felt something rushing through my body like I'd never felt before. I jumped up, scared out of my mind, but I said, well, I always decided if I ever knew that there really was a God, I would live like I believed that there was a God. So um, two days later, I walked into a church. The pastor prayed with me because I wasn't sure if I'd done it right. And again, I felt this overwhelming sense of God's presence. And the only way I could praise him worthily enough, it seemed, was if he gave me the words to do it. He could have done it in English, but it started coming out in another language. And been doing that ever since. Didn't know there was a name for it back then. So you got saved. You had an experience at salvation. Do you think that was baptism in the Holy Spirit? Or was that just the assurance of the Holy Spirit coming into you because you are now a believer? I think the first day it was I was born again. I think the two days later is when I experienced the fullness of of that. All right. But they were pretty close together in my own in my own case. So some people have that experience at conversion. Other people, it comes later. Uh, some people seem to get baptized in the spirit before they're even converted, which doesn't really fit most theological paradigms. But when we look at how the Holy Spirit fell at Cornelius's house, yeah. um, and they haven't they haven't really been given a proper altar call or put in water yet, and yet Peter goes, "Well, we can't if if they're speaking in tongues, we can't withhold it from them." Yeah. So, uh, so it it seems like God's biggest concern is that people get into the kingdom. Yes. All right, so you you made your way into becoming a seminary professor. How did that happen? That's not uh, that's not a common direction for people to head toward, unless they've already had some fairly, I would say, extensive interaction with scripture, church history. Something about the the church itself really draws them. And as you said, you didn't come from a Christian background initially. So how did you become? A theologian. It, it didn't happen the next year. Um, <laughs> it, it took a while, but I I was, um, I mean, the little kids in Sunday school knew more about the Bible than I did. So I needed to just immerse myself in the Bible. I found out if you read 40 chapters of the Bible a day, you can get through the New Testament every week, or you can get through the Bible once a month. And so I started cramming, trying to catch up. 
And sometimes I was doing more detailed study, but sometimes I was just trying to get this overview to, to catch up. And eventually, um, as I was studying, I realized there are a lot of things that, I mean, the context made all the difference in the world. You know, it's not just Bible memory verses with a lot of blank space in between. But when I began to go in even deeper, I realized there's a lot of things that the biblical authors don't explain because they didn't need to, because their original audience understood them. Um, it was part of their shared culture or shared background. And for me to understand it, I needed to get that background. Before I was a Christian, I'd already been interested, intrigued by Greek and Roman literature, but I really needed to delve into the Jewish sources and, and so on. And it just gave me a hunger for Bible background. And eventually that led to a, a PhD, which it doesn't have to, but um, I didn't have the resources I needed on my own at that time. I needed to just immerse in the ancient sources. And eventually I decided, you know, by the time if I finish my PhD and there's not like a Bible background commentary that, that gives this background verse by verse or passage by passage, I've done all this work. Let me write it, put it at people's fingertips so they don't have to go get a PhD or whatever to, to get all this information, uh, unless they really want to get um, more into it. But, you know, just for preaching and so on, you don't need to spend 10 years studying background. So I guess that's what kind of drove me towards it. I loved the Bible and there was so much I just had to understand better. So I, you know, I've always said, and I think I said it at the conference, that one of the things we want to cultivate in our own lives is a fascination with God, with his ways, with his deeds in history. All of that is part of being fascinated with God. And you didn't use that exact language, but what you described was that you had this interest, this thirst, this, you know, fixation on these things, and it just pulled you into it, and you went further and further after it until suddenly out you popped with a PhD and well, gee, I better distill some of this into books. And, and so voila, without really meaning to become one, you became a doctor of the church, a theologian, um, a teacher. And, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about you is you are a spirit filled man who is a teacher. I think in the last 40 years or so, maybe longer, but at least 40 years, um, I think that the the function of teaching in the church has been significantly devalued. And it's been devalued in multiple ways. Part of it is that people just don't really teach the Bible or read it publicly in church. That alone is a degradation. Um, when they do teach it, they often don't teach it in a way that's uh, true to the historical context in which it was uh, scripted, whichever part we may be speaking of. We call this grammatical historical interpretation. Um, and in other places, uh, people have almost specialized in taking verses out of context, twisting them to mean whatever they really want them to mean, I guess, <clears throat> and coming up with strange and diverse doctrines. And so we've got all this going on, and it's largely because the voice of the teacher has been muted. And, you know, everybody wants a word from the prophet. Everybody wants to see the miracles of the whoever it may be. But we still need to come back to the scriptures. And I've always said that there has never been a big, meaningful, substantial move of God 
any time in the history of the church where the scriptures were not in the center of it. So if we are really serious about, um, you know, wanting to see God move in a reforming way and to provoke a worldwide revival, we got to come back to the the stuff that you do. And sometimes it's hard, gritty work. Sometimes it's, uh, it's, it's not easy. But before we get to the hard, gritty part, tell us what you find fun and joyful about being a theologian. What, what do you love about it the most? What gets you out of bed in the morning or keeps you up late at night? <laughs> I love scripture. I love encountering God's, God's voice there. And it's not the only place where we encounter God's voice. The scripture itself testifies. Uh, it's it's uh, time-tested. You know, there were a lot of prophets in Jeremiah's day, but Jeremiah was the only one who spoke the word of the Lord. And so it's his book that makes it into the Bible. <laughs> And so when we have the when we have the scriptures, it's already tested. It's already it's it's uh, well the word canon it means a measuring stick. It's what we can use to evaluate everything else, and we get to know God's voice there. That'll keep us on track in in our other hearing of God's voice as well. When I was a a young Christ, really young Christian, I was uh, still reading it in the King James. And I was reading the book of Numbers, and it was this time when it was going through all these sacrifices and offerings. And I'm like, God, this is so boring. <laughs> uh, I really want to hear you. Why were you talking to him about all these other things? I can't hear you. And and it was just shortly after that, he he sparked faith in my heart that he'd give me whatever I asked him. And so I asked him to open my ears to hear his voice. And it was so beautiful. Um learning to hear his voice and hear his heart. But everything he said was in line with scripture. Most of it was in the language of scripture. Yeah. And so as I would read scripture, hearing his voice there also. Uh, actually, one of my early, early teachers, because I, I knew God called me to, to preach the Bible. He actually called me to call the church back to the scriptures. And I didn't know what that meant, obviously, at that time. But one of my teachers because he told me to learn Greek and Hebrew. So it was my Greek professor. He was, he, something the Holy Spirit would tell me in prayer a week later, or, or later in the same week, this professor would explain the same thing from the biblical text. And I'm like, wow, they agree. <laughs> they work together. <laughs> and yeah, it keeps us on track. It keeps us focused, provided we're reading it in the right way. It keeps us focused on God's heart. I think that's right. It's interesting to me, you know, Moses, when he's on the mountain, he says, well, you keep telling me I've found favor in your sight. And so if I'm found favor in your sight, teach me your ways that I may find more favor in your sight. He doesn't use the word more, but it's clearly implied by the context. This is Exodus 33, and it, it spills into the first part of 34. Of course, in Exodus 20, God has given him the Ten Commandments, but then God begins to give him all these other things. And I think this is all part of the, here's how we find the the ways of God. We run in his paths. And as we run in his paths, well, then we find satisfaction. We find reward. Um, in Joshua, it's promised that if you meditate on the word, you'll actually find good success in what you do. And so there's all of this that comes out of the word of God that I, I think many people just don't appreciate what's there. And if you don't, if you don't understand that, you might not have a value on reading it and meditating on it and you know, chewing on it. In, in Exodus 33, where he says, show me your glory. And the Lord says, I'll make all my goodness pass before you. So showing him his character. 
And he says, you can't see all my glory and live, but I'll show you part of my glory. And as the Lord passes before him, there's this cosmic spectacle of fireworks, but the Lord declares his character. He says, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, who, who uh, visits the iniquity of the parents and the children of the third and fourth generation, but whose covenant love and faithfulness is to the thousandth generation yeah. of those who fear him and keep his commandments. And Moses has been asking God to continue to dwell with his people. And he says, all right, God, if that's the way you are, then please forgive us and dwell with us. And God said, I will. And some 1,300 years later, depending on when you date the Exodus, John 1, 14 through 18 says, the word became flesh. And we beheld his glory. Just like Moses beheld his glory, we beheld his glory. And now the full embodiment of all that was there revealed to Moses, revealed in the Old Testament, all of God's word that had already been revealed is now revealed in flesh. He says, we beheld his glory, glory full of grace and truth, which is like a paraphrase of what he said to Moses. He goes on to say, no one has beheld God at any time, just like he said to Moses, but the one and only God who is in the bosom of the Father has made him known. And you look through the whole Gospel of John and you see the way God reveals his glory and signs and wonders, and especially in the cross, where humanity's hatred for God came to its ultimate expression. God's love for us, his grace and, and truth, his, his uh, generosity, his faithfulness came to its fullest expression in the cross where he was revealing his heart to us in the fullest way. Amen. You know, one of the things that I've preached on before, and sometimes it makes people sort of, whoa, kind of checks them. So as you pointed out, John says, we beheld his glory, and it's similar to Moses. When Moses is on the mountain in Exodus 33, God says, you can't see my face, but you can see my back. So I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And then when I pass by, I'll remove my hand and then you can see my back. Well, this this sounds very I don't know what to say, humanoid in form. And uh, so it suggests that maybe God has something like a spiritual shape. We don't usually use this language, and I don't know if this is the best language. It might need refining. But um, when Moses was on the mountain with the elders, they looked up, they saw the blue sapphire paving, and they saw the feet of God, which again suggests that there's something I don't know if we're Godoid in form and he or he's humanoid in form. Since he created us, it's probably better to say we are Godoid in form. In the image of God did he make mankind. But but anyway, um it suggests that what Moses got, although not fully revealed, Im, imperfect, was a revelation of the coming one who would be God incarnate. And he saw the the back of Jesus before Jesus was ever born, roughly 1400 years before, again, depending on when you date the Exodus. It's, it's, an, interesting, um, it's an interesting parallel to put that Exodus passage against John and to realize that this is all recorded for us in the pages of scripture. But as with many of these things, and I, and I mentioned this in the message I gave in our last, uh, on our last night at Fusion, some of these require that we stop and kind of peer into them a little bit, that atenizo verb. We need to really, we, we need to meditate, we need to focus, or we might actually miss the revelation that's there. People speak of anthropomorphism 
uh, or or accommodation, divine accommodation. So he's right. revealing himself in in ways that we can sort of understand. But in in Jesus, the the face of God, the heart of God is revealed right. because we see the fullness of grace and truth, especially in the cross. Um, biggest biggest fullest revelation we'll get until we we see him face to face and and now as we are known but but like you said also later in john in john 12 he says uh re regarding isaiah 6 where where isaiah saw the glory of god this is what isaiah said when he saw jesus basically and and uh even in john chapter 8 where he says uh, abraham saw saw jesus day and, and was glad so when god was revealing his glory he was jesus was there as as part of that glory also uses the analogy of moses in second corinthians 3 where he says okay moses beheld part of god's glory we've got an even deeper revelation it's not with plagues it's not a revelation of death it's a revelation of life uh, transforming us not with the outward glory so people can't stand to look at us but with Sometimes people can't stand to look at me for other reasons, but <laughs> inward glory. Uh, you know, we have this treasure in earth and vessels, he says in chapter four. But by the Spirit, as we see Jesus better and better, we are more and more transformed into his likeness. Second uh, Corinthians 3:18. And that's our that's our goal. And like you said, fixing on him, looking at him. Again, Colossians 3. One and two, setting your affections on things above. There were Jewish mystics talked about, you know, trying to see God's throne, and Platonist philosophers talked about meditating on heavenly things, on the disembodied, emotionless God, uh, high above everything, pure intellect. But no, for Paul, set your affections on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, not an emotionless, passionless God but the God of the cross, the God of, of Jesus Christ. And as we see what he's like, we are transformed to be more like him, uh, the fruit of the spirit in, in our lives. Yeah, amen. Well, okay, so this is the fun and the joyful part of being a theologian. Tell us a little bit about what's challenging and difficult about this calling. We may have some people listening to this podcast who are Weighing in their minds, do they want to uh, maybe go to seminary, start this journey, and possibly one day become a theologian? So what what's hard about it, or what's less pleasant? The fun part is getting to immerse yourself in the Bible. The hard part is not not getting to immerse yourself in the Bible enough. <laughs> it's like, um, if it were just studying the Bible and just, just preaching the Bible, that would that's joyful. Although sometimes it's like, you know, uh, Ezekiel or John eating the scroll and it tastes like honey, but it, it makes your stomach sick because some of the message is message of judgment and so on. But there's also, because I want people to understand the Bible better, I feel like it's my responsibility and, and my calling to understand the background. So I have to do a lot of work with that. And also, I learned from other scholars but some of the stuff is good and some of the stuff is bad. So you have to weigh that and, you know, reading the secondary literature. And then when I write uh, academic work, the footnotes, they take a lot of time. 
So uh, it's not all studying the Bible. It's also other things that help me study the Bible better. You know, it's like learning Greek and Hebrew. If you're not Greek or you're not um, raised in the synagogue or something, and uh, it may be tedious, but oh, the, it's worth it because of what it opens in light of scripture. I'm not saying everybody's called to do that, but um, the, the more we do these other things, provided we do them in the service of the work of the Lord. So the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs says to seek wisdom and to seek knowledge. So we, we seek those things and we seek them on the right foundation for the right purpose. And just we can go deeper in, in the way God has shown himself to us in scripture. Yeah. And, and learning to trust scripture too. It's like, it's one thing to study the grammar. That, that, that can be exciting if, as long as it's the grammar of scripture. Embracing it in faith, believing what's there and, and appropriating and applying it in our lives and calling the church to apply it. That flexes some muscles that scholars don't always even know that exist. <laughs> That's a really profound statement you just made there uh, that you, know, you can even find uh, value, benefit, joy in something like the grammar. Um, and scholars themselves don't always realize that. I think it's possible to lose the forest for the trees at times. Yes. And I think this is what happens to many people in seminary. I mean, I will say I loathe doing footnotes. I hate it. It's gotten better with um, software like Zotero, which helps. But but footnotes are just they're just tedious. And when you read something you like, you have to stop what you're doing and, you know, capture that because, you know, if you don't, you know what's going to happen. You're, you'll go back later and you'll go, now, where was that thing? Oh, I can't quite remember it. And then you've got to redo the work. And as they say, if you don't have time to do it right the first time, you'll never find time to do it over. And that's where they call it research. <laughs> that's right. Research. Exactly. So, um, yeah. And there, there are certain things about being a scholar that require, well, technical skills, skills that have a very particular uh, aspect to them. And it's it's actually not unlike what scientists do or, for that matter, accountants. I mean, most of the things in life that are worth doing, surgeons, we could mention that too, pharmacists, um, most of the things in life that are worth doing have this sort of very particular almost a tedium to them because you've got to pay attention to the details because as they say the devil's in the details or maybe a little more kindly little things matter and if you're faithful in little things you'll be faithful in big things and i think there's a lesson in that that you know you've been faithful with all this detail for years and years and years in your own journey and it's part of what has brought you to the place that you are today, where people respect you because they know you've done your homework. Holy Spirit is in the details, too. Not just the devil. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. But. <laughs> and, and, and of course, I'm not saying everybody needs to be a scholar, but just like we have prophets or, you know, evangelists or pastors, you know, there are different gifts in the body where we can be we can we can draw on one another's gifts so we all want to grow in this but then we have certain specialties in a sense 
as members of Christ's body that, that can contribute to the rest of the body. But all of us can, you know, if we read the Bible in context, um, the way God gave it to us, not the verse here and the verse there, but, you know, just just reading a book of the Bible at a time and, and seeing how it fits together and learning the message that, that God has there, that's a way to really embrace Scripture and get it pretty well right. And then for, for background and other things, you there are resources that are provided that we can we can depend on. Yeah. All right. So you've crafted some true magnum opuses, opi, uh, magni opi, if we say it in proper Latin. But the way English people turn that word around, it becomes magnum opuses. Um, and I mentioned your 4,500 page uh, commentary on Acts. And you have some other, you know, beefy, beefy books. Right now, you're working on a new commentary on Mark. I'm curious, what is the unique point of view that you're bringing to your Mark commentary? Because there are hundreds of commentaries on Mark, not all of them of equal value, of course. But um, what what is your commentary on Mark going to bring to our understanding of early Christianity and also how we should understand Mark and his message? Of course, I'm I'm digging into the the background, you know, questions come up about like, um, just just as you read the text, things like Jesus sits on a donkey that's never been ridden before and rides the donkey, and what what can what does that tell us? And so, I consulted with a, an equine studies professor who referred me to some books on re rearing donkeys. And guess what? You can't get on a donkey that's not been ridden before and then ride the donkey <laughs> very far because you know, you have to break the donkey in. It's going to take a long time to do that. But Jesus, who can still the storms, who can still the still the seas, who has authority over all of nature, the donkey knows its master, even if even if the people, his his own people didn't didn't recognize him. So the background makes a, a big difference. But also, um I'm I'm getting a, a fresh perspective on Mark that I didn't have before. Like I'd written a big commentary on Matthew, and I, you know, all except a couple of stories in Mark are also in Matthew. So I've been reading Mark through the grid of Matthew, which is what Christians did for over a thousand years after Augustine. But reading Mark on its own, I'm seeing so much of of how Mark's own themes, what he's actually preaching from the life of Jesus comes through. And a, a key theme there is, is the issue of suffering and how Jesus' Jesus' own disciples don't get it. I mean, he chooses nobodies. He doesn't choose the scribes. He doesn't choose the, the priests. He doesn't choose the most prominent people you might expect. He chooses nobodies. But halfway through the gospel, they're they're starting to think like the scribes and like other people. They're, they're starting to think they're the big people. Well, you know, in your kingdom, I want the seat on your right and on your left. And I want to be greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus has to set them in the context of his own ministry where he came to not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He, the, the Lord of the universe, and Mark has a very high Christology, we might say. I mean, he opens up 
with passages from the Old Testament about preparing the way for God. And then John the Baptist prepares the way for Jesus. He says Jesus is going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. Well, that fits these Old Testament prophecies about God pouring out his spirit. Who else could pour out God's spirit except God himself? But here in Mark chapter 1, verse 8, that's the role of Jesus. So we, we see Jesus is divine. But when we look at his mission, he comes to, to serve. And it's about suffering. It takes him the first half of the gospel to realize he's the Messiah. It takes him the second half of the gospel to realize that what that means is he's going to suffer and, and die. And I mean, that's not, I'm not like the first person to say that, but just uh, seeing how pretty much everything in the gospel, every, every paragraph has like a piece of that foreshadowing Jesus' power um, that's revealed in the transfiguration, that's revealed in his uh, epiphany as he walks in water, and ultimately in the resurrection. And the responses, the negative responses from people, I mean, the demons have to obey him, the seas have to obey him, a donkey obeys him, people are the only ones that get a choice. And ultimately foreshadowing the, the cross. Uh, there's just so much there. It's just, um, but it also warns us, because I think in our culture in the West, we often get triumphalistic or we get content and we don't realize that the moment we become followers of Jesus, our lives are, I mean, if, if we're still alive, if we don't get martyred right away, well, that's just a gift <laughs> because <laughs> our lives belong to him and suffering is a part of following Jesus in this world and we need to be, to be ready for that. Uh, and, and there's two sides of the coin too. I mean, it's like, he models bringing healing and deliverance to people who are in need. And at the same time, he models the cost of, of suffering. And, and, and you even see that Mark, Mark explicitly mentions the Holy Spirit only, only, I think, six times in this gospel. But the first three of them are in his opening paragraphs. He's going to baptize in the Spirit. When he's baptized, the Spirit comes on him, which makes him the model for the Spirit-baptized life. And then the spirit drives him into the wilderness where he's tested by the devil. So the Christian life is one of conflict in a sense, but it's it's a conflict that's empowered by, by God's own presence and spirit in our lives. Wow, conflict empowered by God's presence. But yeah, I mean, that is the wilderness and it makes it very clear Jesus was driven by the spirit into that very conflict. And, and, and the wording that's used, it says the spirit, the, the Greek word, is the same word for the word that's often used for casting out demons. The spirit right. casts oh. Jesus into the wilderness for conflict with the devil. And the rest of the gospel, empowered by the spirit, Jesus is casting out the devil's agents. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost like, <laughs> it's almost as though the father didn't want Jesus to become uh, too comfortable in his in his role so okay boy this is what it's really going to be like going forward boom 
because it says well when that when all of the testing was over the devil left him until an opportune time so he may have passed that test but it, the tests were not over even then yeah yeah and interestingly the the word testing appears later on when the pharisees test him and and so on um all through Galilee, he's casting out demons. But when he gets to the capital, we're all, uh, okay, now we're going to talk about the other side of theologians, where the, all the theologians and the, um, the the people with social and political power are concentrated. It doesn't mention demons very much there. You know, the earlier demons he could cast out, but here you find entrenched evil as people are abusing power over other people and ultimately abused it against Jesus. Yeah, I think I think evil is often personified in the abuse of power. I wouldn't say it's universally personified that way, right. but it's frequently personified. Yeah. 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 So this Mark commentary, do you have an idea of how many pages it may run? I mean, you've written a lot of commentaries. You have a sense of things. How, how big is this one going to be? Uh, it keeps getting bigger. I'm trying not to do that too much. It shouldn't be as big as the Acts commentary. Mark is only sixteen chapters, but I am trying to I am trying to explain in detail, uh, work work with it in detail. So I don't know how many pages right now. We're anticipating four volumes, but these are shorter volumes than the the Acts commentary. There's a shorter version of the Acts commentary, seven hundred pages with Cambridge, but the the four volume one is with Baker and. This Mark one is with TNT Clark. Wow, you've got some of the best houses around for uh, academic publishing. I'm impressed. Yeah. Yeah, it's that it's God's God's gift. I yeah, and the ones with Cambridge, those were those were a blessing. I hadn't I hadn't anticipated, but God just opens doors. The day before I was going to call Duke and tell them I couldn't come to do my PhD, the Lord provided the money. You know, so. Uh, and it wasn't my faith, I assure you. It was just God <laughs> watching over his calling. Well, yeah, he has a way of doing that. Uh, John Wimber always used to say, give us the, 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 in the New Testament, when Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer, uh, specifically in the Ma uh, Matthew version of the Lord's Prayer, mm -hmm. give us this day our daily bread. What that really means is give us tomorrow's bread today, which I was never fully convinced of that exegesis, but I understand the principle for sure. <laughs> you know, meet our needs before they really become uh, serious needs. So for the Lord to have provided money like that for you to go to Duke, which is a, it's academically a very strong program. My, the church history professor I, uh, I studied with the most at Fuller was a man, man named Richard Muller. And he was recruited away from Fuller to go teach at Duke Divinity School. Mm. And I'm sure he's retired now, but anyway, I, uh, I've often thought about Duke, um, with very favorable thoughts, uh, because of some of the history that's there. Of course, it seems like all academia is under siege these days. And True. yeah, so I, I don't know. Anyway, what was once good, maybe I, it needs to be revisited always, but well, they're, I mean, they're, they're, that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good professors there now. It's been, yeah, I graduated in 91, but so my professors who were my professors then aren't there anymore, but but I, I know a number of the professors there and really respect them. And yeah. yeah. So when you're studying the Bible, 
um, you read Greek well, uh, fluently, um, Hebrew the same. Do you generally read the Bible in English or do you read it in its original languages? Just, just I'm talking about devotional purposes or if you're going to preach. Um, or do you do you just stay with the original languages all the time? I read English a lot faster than yeah. I read the others, to be honest. So um, devotionally, right now I'm I'm doing my devotions in English. There was a time when I was doing most of them in Hebrew. It 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 depends. I mean, there's different different times, there's different seasons for for things. Now, during the day when I'm working on the text, I'll spend a good bit of that in, in the Greek. Yeah. I mean, the Greek text of Mark. Mark, Mark is not that hard. Uh, I mean, in Greek, Mark is not is not hard. First Peter, that commentary. First Peter is a bit harder Greek, and um, some other uh, Luke Acts. Uh, he he's he writes pretty sophisticated Greek, but. In Hebrews, the easiest the easiest uh, Greek in in the book of Hebrews are the quotes from the Old Testament. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure, just by virtue of what you do, that you you must have intersected at some point and perhaps know well Don Hagner. Oh yeah, yeah. For sure. So he yeah. was uh, he was my New Testament uh, theology professor at. Fuller and he encouraged all of us. We all had those red covered Nestle Aland uh, Greek New Testaments. And he encouraged all of us to do our devotions in Greek and he got me on board with it. And so for a long time, I used to do that. I don't, I don't do that anymore, mainly because I don't need anything else to carry around with me everywhere I go, but I still have my Nestle Aland Greek New Testament. And when they've come up with newer editions of it, I always make sure I have one nearby. So for those that are listening to this, it is actually possible to learn yes. these languages well enough anyway that, albeit at a slower speed, you can read them in the original languages, and there is some value in that. Which, uh, which English Bible do you like the best? Which translation? Which verse? Well, there's that for sure, <laughs> yeah. Because they aren't they aren't always equally good in the way they translate everything. I, I'll I'll answer my own question for you. You can see if you think I'm off. So the three English translations that I like the best are uh, New King James, uh, New American Standard, but I only like the '95 version. I don't like the more modern one, and I like the English Standard version. I always direct our listeners to those three when they're looking for a good solid English translation of the Bible. Yeah. So some of some of that has to do with what you just said. I recognize there are some passages that I think one of them translates better than the others, but then on a different passage, one of the one of them might <laughs> translate that passage better than the others. I think when you're reading narrative, a good narrative flow that helps you get into it is good. And so some of the more, uh, you know, it's a continuum, but some of the more dynamic equivalent ones can be uh, can be better. NIV, NRSV, whatever. But when you're when you're dealing with a detailed argument, there you want it to be as close to word for word as possible, or at least have that there. So I, I do like the 95 uh, New American Standard. The problem with the New King James, and actually I've written study notes for <laughs> some New King James, so I'm not like opposed to it. But the problem is 
that it's it's often based on uh, later manuscripts because mm. it's following in the pattern of the King James on that. So it's an updated language, updating of the language, which is probably the most important point for for readability. But but if I remember right, they even include First John five seven from the King James, which actually is only in a handful of manuscripts, all of them after the year 1200. It's not in any of the early manuscripts. So, uh, but, you know, otherwise their readers would have um, protested because uh, hey, it's in the, it's in the old King James, you're taking it out. Yeah, this business of uh, maintaining the integrity of the text is a, it's a whole science unto itself, really. Yeah. And very few people understand the ins and outs, but I feel very fortunate to have been trained in that uh, when I was younger. But um, but yeah, I, I think in the rank and file of Christians out there, probably one in a hundred don't really appreciate the nuances and subtleties that go on with manuscript uh, protection, generation, yeah. transmission. I'm, I'm glad that, that most translations today do have footnotes when necessary. Mm -hmm. to identify you know this manuscripts vary on this or, or so on it, it they don't really change your overall theology because you know the thing that you're missing in one passage it's still in another passage but all right well let's change gears here got a couple last questions and we'll be done uh so you were with us at our fusion event during the week of october 18 to 21 in uh, nashville um as the it's been a few days now since we concluded that event. Do you want to share any reflections that you have of what you saw, heard, experienced, good, bad, indifferent? <laughs> well, it was great having that front row seat. I, I like to, often I sit in the back so I can slip out if I need to use the restroom or something, but uh, it was great having the front row seat and especially when healings started happening. And, you know, I could just see the expressions in people's faces and um, and in, in, in the time spent with the other, other speakers was wonderful, too. I know one of them was saying how it's difficult for her. Well, not she didn't say this on stage, but difficult for her even to go to the restroom because people are always it's like the paparazzi are always after you. <laughs> so but it was nice uh, to just have the informal time together with. With the other speakers eating together and so on and some of them did prophesy to me and some of the things they prophesied were things that i've been praying about in fact one of them even happened in public when we were in a in in one of the workshops sessions uh it was a, a panel discussion and um kim kim moss asked me what do you feel like the church needs to hear right now that the spirit is saying and i said well i feel like the spirit is saying that the church in the U.S. is not ready for suffering, but suffering is coming. We need to get ready. And she said she felt she felt that, and she felt that also that suffering, there needs to be a good book on that, and that she said that um, when she prays about that, she feels like I keep coming to her mind. And I said, did you know that Roland Baker and I have been talking about writing a book on suffering? She said she didn't know that, but you know, different different confirmations of things that were just. Um, and then, the uh, the final night that was really meaningful to me. 
because usually when people are being prayed for, I, I'm like, okay, well, here are the people who have the most experience with it. I let them go for it. But there were so many people coming forward who needed prayer. And anyway, it was it was wonderful to be able to to put into practice. Um, and actually, somebody had also prophesied to me about praying for the sick and so on. Anyway, to just feel the heart of Jesus for people, an agent of him in praying for them. I mean, that's not my, the main thing that I do. I'm, I spend most of my day in front of a computer. <laughs> uh, but the same Jesus that I know in prayer, the same Jesus I read about in the Gospels, is the same Jesus who cares for these people and wanted them to be healed. And as I was praying for them, and some of them were getting better or feeling heat or, or whatever. Um, I mean, I didn't feel any heat coming out of my hand, but I, where I was touching them, I, I could feel the heat on them. Uh, and not on other parts of the body, but just, just where I was touching them for the healing. And, and to know it's just God's grace. All our gifts are just God's grace. It's nothing we do to make ourselves worthy. I didn't get to hear the gospel because I deserved it, obviously. But God is just so generous and so gracious and faithful. And as for healings, I've been praying for a long time for God to be able to work through me in that way more. So it was just, uh, anyway, I'm talking too much, but I I I really had a wonderful time. Uh, now, you, you asked me to also say the bad. Um, there were a few scriptures out of context. Um, one that get that gets quoted a lot if i can just give one example yep and it's not it's not limited to the conference it just happens all over the place but the thief comes to steal kill and destroy oh yeah obviously the devil does that but in the context in john 10 it's just whoever comes to lead us away from jesus in the immediate context it was those particular pharisees uh, who were you know putting the blind man out of the synagogue the formerly blind man out of the synagogue but anyway uh, i don't want to go on too long on it but just to say yeah there there are verses that get quoted out of context that one doesn't do too much harm because it is true that the devil does that yeah but, but we do want to bring all the gifts together and including deeper understanding of god's word yeah well i was i was gonna make a joke you can hardly have a conference <clears throat> where a scripture won't be quoted out of context somewhere just seems to go with the territory even if you were to go to say something thrown by i don't know westminster theological seminary right there would probably still be at least a few where yeah. maybe be a preacher's own particular pet understanding right. uh, so i think it just goes with the territory yeah well it was a great conference <clears throat> i've had lots and lots in fact just now while we're talking and my inbox is filling up with more messages from people um, we had a lot of dramatic healings we had uh some amazing preaching uh explosive release of prophecy it was just mm -hmm. it was it was for me an ephesians three twenty moment it was far beyond anything i could have asked or thought mm -hmm. and i'm very grateful that the lord allowed it to to come off mm -hmm. as he did all right well let's um let's let me just ask you this last a couple things. So you're nearing retirement age, and we talked about this when we were together, but it isn't quite here. Um, do you want to share with our listeners what you think you might be doing 
in retirement, it's hard for me to believe you would actually back away from your computer and stop being a scholar. So what does retirement really mean for somebody like you? My idea of retirement is I love to study the Bible. I don't like to be distracted from working in the Bible. So I get to work in the Bible full time. Um, but that would mean, yes, continued scholarship. And But I love teaching the Bible, too. So I don't know. I guess retirement would mean I would stop getting paid for my work. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I just I keep thinking if I could just have more time, but I'm not sure exactly how that would work. I guess retirement means I don't have to go to meetings. Well, and you don't have to teach classes, I suppose. I like teaching classes. I don't know. I don't know what retirement is going to look like. Um, <laughs> and what's but, your expected date of retirement? I mean, I guess it could be pushed out, but but what's the first eligible date? Well, I already... The students I took in this year, the doctoral students who came this year, at least one of them I'm working with so closely, I, I have to at least stick with him. So um, I would say probably I, I need to stick with it at least for more years. But if I retire, I really don't know what that's going to look like. I I just, yeah, I just want to keep preaching and teaching God's word. And somehow I want to have more time to do it rather than less. I don't know how that's going to work. <laughs> I don't know how that'll work either, but may the Lord give you wisdom on how to do it. Well, all right. Um, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I know it was a it was a busy four days when we were together, and you actually rearranged the timing of your own sabbatical in order to be with us. Um, and I know you said you were going off to yet another conference. So, you know, friends, for those of you who don't know Dr. Craig Keener, uh, he is a highly sought after speaker. He may not be someone that you know because you're used to listening to certain other uh, names and voices who are part of the renewal. But um, uh, Craig brings to us a perspective that is, I would say, sorely lacking in a lot of our events. And I thought he was a very important part of what we did at uh, Fusion because of the perspective that he brings. And by the way, that's not to take away from Jack Deere, who was also with us and who also holds an advanced degree and who has also been a seminary professor, but who is now uh, retired from that. Um, so, you know, we need the teachers in the church just as we need apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors. So I'm grateful that we have uh, these kinds of people around us and who are speaking into what we're doing and helping us make sure that we don't make any big mistakes <laughs> as we go forward. It's part of the mid-course correction and of the body needing the body. Um, Craig, would you be willing to uh, pray a prayer as we conclude and uh, and send us out? And you look like you have something else you want to say, so feel free to insert that. Yeah, just it, it said that Smith Wigglesworth, toward the end of his, his life, uh, he was disappointed that a lot of the Pentecostal revival of his day <clears throat> wasn't grounded anymore in scripture. And he prophesied that a time was was coming when there would be an outpouring of the spirit that would bring together word and spirit. And we really, we really need that. I mean, you have some parts of the body that are really strong on, on one or strong on the other, but they're not in conflict. We 
we need them both. And um, yeah, and so, uh, yeah, you, you asked me to pray for. Yeah, just pray for our listeners. And as we say, pray us out. <laughs> thank you. Father, thank you that you hear our prayers. Thank you that you are with us. Thank you that you are so generous. I pray that you will continue to open our ears to hear your voice, open our hearts to hear you, to know you, to walk in the light of your presence. I pray that you root us and ground us in your word. Make us each what you called us to be. And God, as the psalmist said, you've made me wiser than my teachers. I pray that you will make my hearers wiser than me, that you will raise up a generation grounded in your word and ready to, to speak your mind and heart that you revealed over the centuries through your holy apostles and prophets in the scriptures, and that you continue to speak to us through that and, and in other ways that are coherent with that even today. We look to you and we thank you so much. Thank you that your ears are open to our cry. Thank you that you look upon us with favor because we are in your son, Jesus Christ. We entrust these prayers to you with full confidence, knowing that you have heard us. In the name of Jesus, our Lord, we offer this prayer. Amen. 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 Well, thank you both so much. And I can attest, uh, Dr. Keener and I were praying for someone uh, this past weekend at the conference uh, for brain damage. And uh, there was a little bit of deliverance things going on in there. And as I was praying, he was praying, had his hand on me. And I was praying at my best prayers. And I kept thinking, boy, I hope I'm not quoting these scriptures out of context. That <laughs> Because you know, I was like, uh, oh, he's good. He's there. But uh, it kept me sharp. It kept me thinking. And, and it was good stuff. And I know you didn't have any sort of room for judgment or anything. I mean, I, I didn't feel any judgment from you, but it's it was intimidating. I'll tell you that much. That's for sure. God, I think, is more concerned with our heart of faith than he is with the precise wording that we're using. I, I have hoped that my whole life because uh, precise wording ain't my specialty. But uh, thank you. Uh, so much for taking time uh, out of your schedule. Your uh, room that you're in is giving me just tremendous anxiety. And so uh, <laughs> just all kinds of books back there. You can, and papers. you can tell how old I am. You know, I, I could have all this in a flash drive, but some of this was pre-flash drive. So right. no, it's wonderful. Thank you so much. And Ken, as always, thank you for joining us. And for all of those listening and watching out there, we just want to thank you. And we will see you right back here this same time for another episode of God is Not a Theory with Ken Fish.